You're listening to Parents You've Got This, the expert guide to parenthood. Your complete guide to pregnancy, birth, baby and parenting. Join us for the journey. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Mustella. Mustella is a natural origin skincare for babies and children, recommended by healthcare professionals. Mustella, by parents' side since 1950. Pregnancy poses so many questions. Your body is about to go through arguably the biggest change it will go through in your lifetime. Today, we are joined on the pod with Dr. Peter Jesevic, who is here to tell us all about the lifestyle and nutrition considerations that we should have in pregnancy. Dr. Peter is an obstetrician with over 27 years of obstetric and gynecological expertise. He's delivered over 6,500 babies and specialises in high-risk pregnancies. He's also one of the Australian pioneers of the maternally-assisted caesarean. He is a leading obstetrician and gynaecologist at Francis Perry House and a head of obstetrics at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne. Thank you so much for being here on the pod today, Pete. Um, let's talk first about nutrition. Why is nutrition so important in pregnancy? Oh, look, I think to state the obvious, you are creating a human being and that human being is then going to live its own life and decisions that you make, particularly nutritionally at the beginning and uh, during the course of your pregnancy and thereafter when you are a parent feeding your child can have really profound long-term implications on your child's health. So nutrition is vitally important. And so, Pete, is there a particular pregnancy diet that we need to be adhering to? I don't think there is a one-stop shop, but one thing that I would really arguably say is common sense and really focusing on good, common, balanced nutrition. So if you have a good breadth of fats, protein, carbohydrate, and obviously all your essential vitamins and so on, and, you know, dare I say, some fruit and veg for fibre, etc., all of those things, you know, balanced will usually mean that you'll get good personal nutrition, which is good for you and your health, your energy levels, uh, your weight and weight maintenance during the pregnancy. But obviously for all the demands that this two-cell embryo at the very beginning needs to then become a human being at the very end. And if we can look at one particular thing, and this is something that I speak to a lot of my patients about, it's called the Barker hypothesis um, as regarding epigenetics, which is a really particularly important new phase of uh, scientific care in obstetrics. And there is evidence that if you have an abnormal environment in the uterus, if you have poor nutritional problems, that can metabolically change a baby. And so the baby's genetics, programming and metabolism can change. Wow. And then when that baby is born and then later in life becomes an adult, it then is predisposed to higher risks for things like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, cardiovascular disease. So if we can mitigate the uterine environment, and certainly from a nutritional perspective, we can enhance your child's long-term general health and well-being. Wow, that's really mind-boggling, Pete. Um, on that, what are the key specific nutrients that our baby and our body needs as we're pregnant? We know about folate and iron. Can you talk a little about these and any others that we should make sure that we are taking enough of in sure. this important period? Sure. So the one thing that is proven and absolutely recommended in all jurisdictions is folate. So 0.4 to 0.5 milligrams of folic acid, which helps to protect the baby's spinal cord or the neural tube to prevent neural tube defects, spina bifida. We also know that it's important to have increased iodine in our diet at an appropriate level, either through our salt intake or through the ingestion of medication. And this is important for thyroid, and the thyroid is very important uh, during pregnancy to help to enhance your metabolism, but also for baby brain development. One thing that I see more commonly nowadays is iron deficiency, and certainly when you do glucose testing in women around the 26th week and we add a, 
a full blood count and an iron stored at that test, it's not uncommon to see that you're iron deficient. And so certainly either an iron rich diet or an iron supplement, managing the consequences of iron ingestion, which can be constipation, and there are some good new agents on the market which are a bit better tolerated gastrointestinally, these would be certainly supplements you could consider using. Beyond that, in terms of additional multivitamins and additional supplements, you can make a strong argument that good nutrition, eating well, a balanced range of foods, fruit, veg, protein, etc., some fish and appropriate fish, recognizing mercury concerns in the high predatory fish, um, having food if you can stomach it, of course, based on cravings and how you're feeling, that will generally provide you with what you need and in answer to the question of what the baby needs to grow and for the high metabolic demands of a rapidly growing fetus, particularly carbohydrate requirement, having just the right amount to help to support that growth. And so if you wanna ensure that your baby's got all those nutrients, you probably wanna look at something like a, um, a multivitamin. Um, but when you go into say somewhere like a big warehouse, like chemist warehouse or something like that, there's like rows and rows and rows of prenatal vitamins. How do you pick the best one? Sure. I don't think you could really, as a, a clinical practitioner, really have a favourite per se, because ultimately they are comparing apple with a different version of an apple. Um, obviously, each of the various multivitamin formulations will spruik their benefits. But generally speaking, if you adhere to having the extra folate, that's important. Iron, if you think you need it, and the iodine. Then beyond that, you might not necessarily need the other things if your nutritional intake is adequate. Then if per chance you decide you wish to take a multivitamin, you can look at the formulations, you can factor in what the content is based on your own research, price, what a friend took and what they thought was good for them, speak to your care provider, make a call. So Pete, we know in pregnancy that there are certain things that we should avoid eating. Can you talk about the current guidelines in terms of the foods that are not recommended to be take, consumed in pregnancy? Sure. So as a care provider, I might say to you, look, go easy on too much simple sugars and carbohydrate. And I'll allude to that again in a second. But more specifically, really the foods that we recommend avoiding are going to be the listeria concerned foods. So listeria is a type of bacteria pathogen which you can acquire food for your consumption. You're more predisposed to it in pregnancy because you're a little bit immunosuppressed. And if you were to get it and it was to affect you and then pass to the baby, it can sometimes have consequences to the baby. And so these are the things that most women will be aware of. So you're uh, non-pasteurised dairy, soft cheeses, raw fish, uh, oysters for example, um, you know, the shakatua plate where you've got the cured meats. These are the things which we're supposed to say to avoid and there are guidelines that you can look at either on the websites through the college that I'm at, through the hospital that you're at, there are Australian-based dietary guidelines, you can look it up quite easily. What's interesting is for a lot of particularly, dare I say, say European uh, women having children who'll be speaking to their mum and their mama, nana and so on, they'll be incredulous to think that you're not going to have cheese and salami <laughs> as part of your diet. They <laughs> ate it and they, everything was fine. Yeah. So it's an interesting point to make because as a long-term provider of obstetric care, I've only actually seen one proven case of listeria and yet we have very strict guidelines on that. My comment very quickly that I made about carbohydrate, I've watched uh, women uh, through pregnancies for many years now and I'm very, very aware of cravings. I'm very, very aware of diet. I'm very aware of what's available in the supermarkets and so on. What I can say is that my experience has shown that with regards particularly weight gain and with weight gain, the challenges of losing weight at the end of pregnancy if you put on a bit extra, and also the implications for gestational diabetes risk, and we're seeing that rate increase exponentially over just one generation. 
if I can give one really strong bit of advice is be very, very careful with your carbohydrate intake. And I guess particularly with reference to your simple sugars. So I would never say don't have chocolate and don't have ice cream and don't have lollies and don't have a treat and you know, don't have any rice and pasta, that would be silly. What I guess I would say is just be cautious with how much you're ingesting if you are concerned with potential weight gain because we are certainly noticing that the, what we were seeing as average weight gain in pregnancy is starting to increase ever so slightly and incrementally. And that average that we're seeing isn't necessarily a recommended average, it's just the average we're seeing. And so you insidiously gain that weight over eight months, nine months, but then you have to then lose it. And then if you have a successive pregnancy and a successive pregnancy, it can be accumulative. Yeah, and what about caffeine? I know I'm a massive coffee drinker. Um, how many cups of coffee is safe in pregnancy? Sure, so I don't think there's actually a scientific study that's been able to categorically prove what is the safest amount. But the guidelines recommend about 200 milligrams of caffeine a day. So that would in general terms be two espressos, whether it be as a double shot there and then, or spread over two drinks. Now, some women simply just have a caffeine aversion in pregnancy. So they just won't drink coffee, and there are others who love it. If we look at risk, it's not really so much it's risk, it's just an awareness of caffeine. So caffeine is an antioxidant, that's a plus. It's a diuretic, which means sometimes you might you know, pass a little bit more fluid, and that can sometimes be a bit of a minus. Your heart rate will go up, that can be a plus, but sometimes it can also be a slight minus. There isn't necessarily any anecdotal effects on fetal well-being in the sense that it's going to stimulate labour or effect growth or anything of that nature. I, I think common sense would say that six to eight shots of espresso a day in any person, non-pregnant even, would be probably not wise and so arguably the same in pregnancy. But it's not going to cause a miscarriage? Uh, there, there were studies some time ago that looked at a potential link between caffeine and miscarriage in a very specific sub-cohort of women, but that's probably not even representing 1% of the population. So I don't think there is any real evidence that if you were to have a coffee, you would cause a miscarriage. What about exercise, Pete? So we're talking about, you know, being obviously really mindful of what we're eating, but in terms of how we're living, if we're pregnant, do we need to cut back on our exercise or should we be changing the nature of the exercise we do? What would you recommend as an obstetrician for someone to be looking at in terms of the exercise that they continue throughout their pregnancy? I'm a massive fan of exercise for anybody, pregnant or otherwise. Uh, the endorphins, the caloric benefits, the fitness benefits, the fact that you're conditioning yourself for the end of the journey where dare I say there is an inevitability to pregnancy, you have to have a baby. And for the majority of you who are choosing to try to achieve that as a vaginal delivery and normal birth, then you're gonna to have to go through a birth process and you have to have some endurance to do that. And so being fit will help. Uh, certainly common sense would say that we're not looking at you wanting to run a marathon and we're not looking at you having your heart rate up into anaerobic threshold, okay? So a lot of people will say, look, wear a Fitbit if you wanted to. Uh, maybe if you know what your max is, you might dial it down so you're just sort of going into sort of a tempo level of exercise, so no more than 140 beats a minute, and that would be okay for most women of childbearing age. Uh, there are exercises which I think are great for women. That doesn't necessarily mean these are the only exercises. But, you know, a jog is good, going for a jog. Swimming is great, the buoyancy of the water, great for your joints. Pilates is brilliant. Pilates is really good because it's really good for your core and your core is going to take a hit and it'll take a hit during the pregnancy and it's going to take a hit forever after. So really good. Yoga, for example. 
even just to walk. I, I have an expression that when you're pregnant, when you're sitting, you're walking, you're walking, you're jogging, you're jogging, you're running. So physiologically, you're always a step ahead of yourself. So you only have to do small amounts of exercise to get a benefit from it. And, and as I said, just getting your heart rate up, feeling good in yourself, getting a break from life, getting ready for the birth, lots of benefits. And are there any lifestyle factors that we need to be mindful of when we're pregnant? Look, very obviously, smoking is a no-no and alcohol is a no-no and the jury is very, very, you know, sort of strict on that recommendation and so we would certainly urge you. And, if, you know, if you were to partake in illicit behaviour, perhaps you would be avoiding taking those illicit substances. Uh, but really, other than, I, I guess, high-risk forms of activity. So there'll come a point where netball might become a bit of an issue because netball is not necessarily a contact sport, but it becomes a contact sport accidentally with an elbow. And you don't want to cop an elbow into the abdomen when you're becoming more pregnant. So football, the same if you're into football. So skiing will become an issue if you're a skier because there'll be a point at which if you fell over and landed on your abdomen, it'll become an issue. So you might need to sort of just modify activities so you're not putting your growing abdomen at jeopardy. But other than changing the intensity of what you're doing, really you should be able to do most things you wish to do. And dare I say, always in pregnancy, common sense prevails. What about sleeping, Pete? So why is it that pregnant women are recommended to not sleep on their back? Sure, so you, you are okay to sleep on your back, and dare I say, even on your front, in the first phases of pregnancy. So first trimester and at least halfway through the second. Physically, you won't be able to sleep on the front of your tummy eventually because yes. there's a bulge <laughs> there, so that's obvious. The reason for recommending sleeping on your side and particularly starting to negotiate that process early on is so you can train yourself to comfortably sleep on your side, left or right, is because when you're lying flat on your back, you've got a growing baby in your uterus, so there's a mound of weight that's pressing on your vessels. That's the vessel back to your heart, the vena cava, and also the local pelvic vessels, which is supplying blood to the baby. And so there's a concern that you can affect your venous return, which affects your cardiac output, which you won't feel good about, but also potentially local compressive effects on the blood supply to the uterus. And so we don't want you lying on the flat of your back in the latter stages of pregnancy. How do you do that? Well, you get a log pillow. I jokingly say my partner found the log pillow a, more, a better companion than me, okay? <laughs> a triangle pillow, you know, where you prop yourself up. A couple of pillows, a wedge under the bed on your side, things like that, which can just keep you a little bit prone. And what about lifting? Are you allowed to lift in pregnancy? Absolutely. You know, I'm sure if you told the Irish mothers of 40 years ago who've got eight children not to lift their children, they'd look at you incredulously. You can lift. You can do anything you can do until your body says it can't. Or if there was some specific medical issue where your care practitioner said you can't, but there would be very few of those. So placenta previa, which people might have heard of, you, you can lift with a placenta previa. Of course, if you had a placenta previa that bled that's got you in hospital, well, you're not lifting because you're in hospital. Again, common sense. What about dyeing hair, Pete? Is it safe to get your hair dyed in pregnancy? Sure. I think the best way to the answer the question is there's no evidence that it's not safe. Okay. Ultimately, if you're putting a chemical onto your skin, then there's a potential for the absorption of that chemical into your body. But then you can say, well, is that chemical in your hair dye any different to your mascara, to your facial cream, to your deodorant, to your lotion that you're using as a moisturiser, which may not be a, you know, a pharmaceutical grade moisturiser, it could be a cosmetic moisturiser, lipstick. Mm -hmm. The chemicals in your food that you eat, are you eating purely organic or are you eating food with chemicals in it? And 
where's the study and the evidence to say this is safe? Now, a lot of you might be listening to this and starting to panic about, God, what am I eating, what am I doing? The thing is that we've got women doing this every day for a long, long time, and we're not seeing lots of worrisomely unwell babies as a result of it. So I think it would suggest that dyeing your hair is fine. And probably my last question, Pete, is can you have sex in pregnancy? Is it safe? Yes, so if we're talking to conventional male-female penetrative sex, penis into the vagina, the answer is yes. The few exceptions would be if you've got a placenta preview, where the placenta is over the cervix, or if your waters are broken. Um, beyond that though, if you are interested and wanting to, you can have sex. Fantastic, Pete. We did have one other question for you, but I think I can probably assume the answer. Um, because you gave such a great answer before about can we dye our hair? What happens with painting our nails? Can we get our nails done? Same answer. Uh, I was asked this question as recently as the other day and the concern was not so much about the application of the varnish onto the nail, but the fumes. Yeah. And I remind people that there are fumes everywhere we go from the petrol station filling up our car through to even just paint leaching off the walls of our office passively. So again, there's no evidence that it's not safe. Well, thank you, Peter, for joining us this week on the podcast. We've loved having you as always. Next week, um, we're going to be talking to Peter again about the pregnancy and the pregnancy care process. A huge thanks to Mustella for sponsoring this episode. Did you know that Mustella is not only for babies? Mustella also has a range of maternity products like the 100% Certified Organic Stretch Marks Oil, Stretch Marks Cream and the Certified Organic Lanolin Free Nipple Balm made up of 100% natural ingredients and dermatologists tested. Mustella products, our family's favourite. You're listening to the Expert Guide to Parenthood. Never forget, parents, you've got, got this. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, a discussion with your doctor or healthcare professional. Parents, you've got this. Take no responsibility for any medical decisions made by individuals based on the information provided in this podcast. You've been listening to Parents You've Got This, the expert guide to parenthood. You've got this parenting gig. 